1: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we're going to hear from Dan Albrecht of the Black Keys on his new solo album, Waiting on a Song and the Future of His Band. And then we're going to dig into the life and legend of the great Greg Allman. Dan's new album is a real departure made with some great Nashville session guys. It has a, a bright open feel that's really like nothing else in his whole catalog. It's almost his Nashville skyline. And I think we'll start by hearing the title track, which he actually co-wrote with John Prine. And then we'll get right into my conversation with Dan Auerbach. So obviously you co-wrote the title track with Prine. What was that process like? Who brought what? How did it come together?
2: Well, that particular, we, we've written a few songs together now, but that was the one that made the record. And, um, that one in particular, he came with the first couplet and, um, just started strumming the guitar and, and we worked away at it. And, um, and, uh, you know, that one, that one happened pretty quickly and it was sort of like an instant sing along for all of us. And, uh, yeah. And that's sort of part of that magic that you're trying to capture. And, you know, you don't know if you're going to get it that day, but sometimes it happens, you know, and that that was definitely a good, that was a good moment.
1: He came in with a couple lines, and you chime in with the next one. It just kind of popped in.
2: Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He he came in with, I've been thinking, I've been humming, I've been picking, I've been strumming, waiting on a song, and then he said, uh, uh, I've been hitching, I've been thumbing, and then I just finished it. I said, I can, I can almost hear one coming. And yeah, like, Twenty minutes later, we, we had the song finished, and we were just kind of singing it over and over again. Yeah, it sort of feels like it's always been there, which is always a pretty good sign. I know, song, yeah. I know. I'm telling you, it was yeah. That was the feeling, like we just were all singing it. We knew it already. Like by the time the first chorus came around, you knew the song already.
1: Dan, you're pretty new to co-writing, right? I mean, that yeah. like that's a very. It's almost. It must be in the water in Nashville like it's it's a co-writing town
2: the thing is i I grew up playing all these songs that were all co-written like with my family all of those songs that i sang were like co-writes and then i joined i started a rock and roll band and never co-wrote ever just it was like we wrote bat and i wrote in the studio together and it and it you know we kind of used the studio as a tool to write with and uh
1: well, I guess Pat was your co-writer, sort of. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, but it wasn't like we just said it was nothing like just sitting down with an acoustic guitar or sitting down with a piano mm. and writing chords and melodies. It was not like that at all. So this is this is more the sort of classic, traditional, the thing that Nashville is so known for. You know, the songwriting tradition, and um, I'd never, I'd never tried it before. I'd never gotten to a room with someone and put just a couple acoustic guitars and tried to write songs. So it was, it was new for me, but, um, I, I loved it right away and I, and started doing it all the time.
1: What does it bring that your other process didn't bring?
2: Well, I mean, I think it's really nice every day, you know, you're writing with a different person and all of these people, they have their own, their own thing, you know, their own magic thing that they do, that they're great at. So, I mean, I think what you're trying to do is, you know, trying to bring the best out of each other you know and if you get lucky that's what that's what happens
1: we talked about john prine obviously it was you know pretty much unless you have like dylan as your co-writer that's about <laughs> as good as you're going to do but tell me about some of the other people you wrote with on this record
2: i wrote um a bunch of the songs with uh, pat mclaughlin and and david ferguson and um and those two guys we, you know we spent all summer together writing fergie hooked me up with all the with a bunch of these writers but uh but we, we would write almost every day. And uh, um, the last song on the record called Show Me, I wrote that with Bobby Wood. And uh, he writes on the piano. He writes on the Wurlitzer, um, which is nice. It's the first time I've ever written with a Wurlitzer. And um, there's a line in there that says, uh, the guy, the character's 20 miles out of Tupelo. And that's that's where Bobby grew up. It was 20 miles outside of Tupelo.
1: Let's hear Show Me for a
2: minute. There's nothing you can say that
1: pump these guys for uh, like Elvis stories did you you ever ever tempted
2: Um, Bobby always said that Elvis told him to be a name dropper (laughs) 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 I mean yeah that's a that's a faucet that never gets turned off I mean they just always tell stories I mean that's that's what it is you know and yeah they've got amazing stories I mean Dwayne told me this crazy story about Elvis he was hanging out with Elvis just in the hotel room just the two of them in in vegas and elvis asked him if he knew of any way that he could get away from his manager <laughs> he
1: asked dwayne that <laughs> wow it's
2: a heavy yeah
1: this is dwayne eddie by the way yeah dwayne about, eddie. yeah who is a monster badass legendary guitar player who plays on i think two tracks on on, on your album
2: maybe even more i okay. mean he was just there all summer he was just another one of the crew how did you get to know him? I met him five years ago with Fergie. We went out to lunch and um, we hit it off, but we we really hit it off when he came to the studio because he's a, he's a freak for the studio, just like me. I mean, you know, the more you think about it, I mean, that's how, he orig- that's how he created his guitar sound was being in the studio with Lee Hazelwood experimenting, you know, with these giant water tanks, you know? Um,
1: what does he show up with? Does he have a guitar and amp that he always to, yeah always so what does he have like? he's
2: got his his own signature Gretsch, yeah and his own signature baritone Wow and he brings his music man fender amp with the big 15 inch Jbl that's the secret any and and, and uh, tremolo pedal and it just sounds like Dwayne he starts playing and it's just him. Mm. It couldn't be anybody but him, you know, which is wild because Mark Knopfler always also plays on the record. And he starts playing, and it could only be him. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's so interesting to, when you get somebody on an instrument that so many millions of people play that, you know, you can make it sound so much your own. That's just so wild. One of the tracks Dwayne
1: plays on, I believe, is Living in Sin, right? So let's oh, hear yeah. a little bit of
2: that, yeah. Last night, you seem to deal with it all right. Girl, you know that I meant well. I promise you Definitely
1: one of my favorite songs on the record. Tell me about just like writing and recording that one.
2: That was just awesome. It sounded just like that in the headphones when we got it, really. I mean, it did. It felt like that. You know, we are just so locked in. There's no edits on that or anything. It just, even the harmonies were were live with Pat. So Pat and I wrote that together at my house. Dwayne played the solo. Just this righteous, ripping, simple, solo, you know, because he plays another solo on another song, and it's this beautiful flowing like West Coast melody, you know, but on that song, yeah, that's what, you know, all these guys are so great at, they know what to, you know, they, they listen to the song, and the song tells them what to play, do you know what I mean? When you have
1: Dwayne Eddy <laughs> about to record a, a solo for one of your songs on your solo album, do you tell him what to do, do you give him any?
2: No, I didn't, I don't, t- I don't tell Dwayne. He's really good at coming up with parts. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not afraid to tell people if I have an idea. But, you know, the great thing about most all these guys is that I don't have to say anything cuz their ideas are better than mine. <laughs> do you get
1: gunshare at all playing guitar in front of like a Dwayne Eddie?
2: No, no, no. Cuz we, we, you know, we do our own thing. Yeah. Yeah. I I I don't get insecure about it. But I mean, I just do whatever the song needs. You know, I'll play... I played mostly acoustic rhythm guitar. You know, got really big into playing rhythm guitar. Locking in with the drums. Um, You know, just being a little bit more concerned with the fabric of the song. Less about any one particular strand, you know?
1: So you wake up in the morning... Like a regular person, and you're in the studio at 9 a.m., is this, so is it like a 9 to 5 thing? How does it work for you?
2: Well, yeah, I get to the studio at like 9 and and uh, work all day long. Go home for dinner, cook dinner, uh, and then maybe if I need to do some overdubs, I'm going to go back to a little bit later. Or I can be done. But, yeah, I, I like to work all day long. I, I like to start early.
1: Was that always the case, like the early Black Keys days or were, that, were you ever like a late night recording? No, 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 man. No. i am
2: always been a morning person, but I always, I always waited till noon to, cause Pat likes to sleep in. So, <laughs> but I don't, we, I'd always have to wake him up.
1: Do you still have trouble sleeping? I remember that was a, a big thing for you.
2: Yeah. Well, the thing is I, I'll sleep six hours and I'm done. I don't sleep any more than that. You yeah. Know? So if I go to bed at 9 PM, yeah, I'm up in the middle of the night mm. after six hours.
1: So how would you sum up this time of your career? Because it seems like a, a real time of sort of freedom and exploration and evolution that's really different from maybe any other time. I, but I, I'm curious how I, you see it. I feel,
2: it. yeah, I, I, it's, it's all of that. But it also is me sort of, I feel like it's the most me that I've ever been, really. You know, I mean, when I did my first solo record, it was similar. I just didn't have these guys. You know, I mean, I was doing a very similar thing. Like, if I'd have had all these guys, I could have played those songs, you know? Songs like Trouble Weighs a Ton. and Yeah. You know what I mean? Those are country songs, sort of, you know?
1: Well, it's funny. I was just, I went back and, and listened again to the first solo record, and let's hear Trouble Ways a Ton. What's
2: wrong, dear brother? Have you lost your faith? Don't you the thing is, you
1: mood-wise, <laughs> it's very different. Oh, yeah, sure. That's So that's kind of what, one of the many things that made me think, like, "Wow," is, is Dan feels like he's in a different place emotionally, especially at that point. You
2: know, I told you I recorded like 200 songs. They're not like all up tempo and happy. You see. know, these are the 10 that worked best together as a record. I thought. You know, I had to like strip myself away, and I just didn't want to be that cliche dude who like makes, puts a double album out. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Just because I have all the songs.
1: Were you tempted? Were you tempted a little no. bit? No, no,
2: okay. not at all. I didn't want to do that because. I wanted the songs to like speak the best that they could, you know, there are a couple songs I knew I wanted to release like waiting on a song. Cause I liked how it felt and uh, a song like living in sin. Cause I liked that. So then when I start to add to those two songs, I want them to all kind of feel similar. So that just, you know, by picking those as the starting point, it kind of like shaped the rest of the record, how it, how it ended up feeling. But I've got a bunch of songs that are like dark and, moody and stormy with (laughs) dwayne playing big low guitar on you know wow uh so then
1: i would be asking you like Dan, what's wrong exactly exactly
2: uh but i do love that people get this feeling from the whole record as a whole because i think that's people telling me that i did it right you know what i mean exactly the record has this feeling to it a spirit.
1: One of the reactions I had to the record, which is that there's some George Harrison occasionally in some moments, but I don't, I don't think that was something you were thinking at all.
2: <laughs> no, I, I don't, I don't, I love George Harrison, but I don't, I've never really listened to any of his solo records. Uh, you know, other than hearing some of the singles on radio, but, um, I don't know. I honestly, I, I didn't listen to anything. I didn't read anything. I didn't <laughs> listen to anything. I didn't go see any movies. All I did was work on music. Mm. And I wasn't really thinking about anything other than just trying to make new stuff. I didn't want to do any covers. We didn't cover any old songs. You know, we just were working on new songs every day. And I, I completely shut off. I didn't, wasn't on the internet at all. It was really freeing, just the whole experience. So you're listening to Wrong Stone
1: Music Now. We're here with the great Dan Auerbach and we'll be right back with a whole lot more.
0: how
1: conscious were you of avoiding sort of your old
2: not at approaches? all approaches yeah i didn't think about anything i just went in and did it that's it and it was it was day to day and we were writing and recording and having picking parties and you know i'm like singing bluegrass songs with Del McCurry and you know it was the, the feeling of of all that music and all of the, the community you know what I mean? I think that that's sort of what I wanted to get across on the record. And, sort, and the thing yeah. that, that I was starting to feel was, it was the, the studio just kind of like came to life, and it just became a place where everyone was hanging out, and the music got stronger. I think because of it.
1: Yeah, you're sort of having these these picking parties like at home, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Which are very much, as we said, kind of like the ones at like family reunions as a kid.
2: Exactly, so. like it. with my uncles there. I'll bring my my uncles oh, come in, <laughs> and they sing. And uh, you know the McCurials will be there, so it'll be like two generations of my family, three generations of the McCurries, you know, singing all these songs, you know, bluegrass, mostly bluegrass songs. But
1: what kind of songs? But, like, tell me which, like, you know,
2: well, because Dell is he's in the, uh, um, I, I grew up in the Stanley Brothers, you know, but I didn't know that there was like a, a line drawn in the sand, like between there's Stanley Brothers people. And there's Bill Monroe people. Interesting. Yeah. Like, so when I first got together with Dwayne, I was like, let's, you know, any, uh, Stanley Brothers songs? And he's like, no, I don't know. I don't know. You know, but he knows every single Bill Monroe song ever written, even besides, you know, but, um, and
1: how much of that, how well do you know all that stuff? Like,
2: uh, I know some of them, Yeah, you know, but I was, I was more into, I know more of the Stanley Brothers stuff. Hmm. Yeah. But we'll sing like, um. Can't You Hear Me Calling. Uh, Dell and I sing that one together all the time. And uh, Columbus Stockade Blues. And, hmm.
1: Let's hear an old version of uh, Columbus Stockade Blues just to get a, a feel for it. Down
2: in Columbus, it
1: back so I'd imagine that that stuff, playing that stuff for fun and then going in the morning and recording new music, it must kind of get in your
2: Well, the head thing space. is we started at the picking parties, we just started playing like waiting on a song. Wow. You know, and with all the McCurries playing along and singing, it's like just sort of becoming another song that we sing in the, in the round sort of, you know? So it really, uh, was all part of the same thing.
1: How important is it to you to be able to evolve? Because already five years ago, you'd already, gone through more evolution than most artists get a chance to nowadays um you, when, when you listen to the big come up and and go to 2010 and 2011 to 2000, it's it's a it was a huge evolution and now it feels like another leap so how important is it to you to be able to kind of just keep moving forward and not be stuck in one thing
2: i think it's really important yeah i mean it's uh it's it's hard to do because you know you make money touring that's how you make a living in the music business unless you're writing top 40 hits which I don't do that you know so it's a hard way to live you know being on the being on the road all the time and it's not a creative way to live for me you know it's hard for me to make music when I'm on the road but I think the thing that I found now is that I don't even I don't want to be thinking about any of that I just don't I don't want to intellectualize this thing that I do you know because it's not that's not what it's for you know, I was really fortunate. That I was raised with music and it's a part of my life. And man, there's a picture on the back of the record of all the guys who play on it. And it's got like Prine and it's got, you know, Kenny Malone and Bobby Wood and Gene Chrisman and Dwayne and Kenny Vaughn and all these incredible musicians. And, you know, pretty much every single one of them, they all grew up on playing music with their family, you know? So it's just, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's almost like... I feel like I'm really just making music and not even thinking about the music business at all, you know?
1: What do you like about, there's a bunch of, like, older guys, not exclusively, but a lot of older dudes that you've been hanging around with and playing with. You obviously get something out of that. What is it?
2: They're incredible musicians. That's it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hang out with them if they weren't great at what they did. Uh, you know, I mean, I love that they tell great stories and stuff, but that's not why I hang out with them. You know, I hang out with them cause they're the best, like the best drummers, the best keyboard players. And, and, you know, you listen to a song like, uh, shine on me, which is on the radio now that's doing really well. And like the drummer's 80 years old. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not, it has nothing to do with their age. There's a fire. There's a spirit that these guys have and it's special. And I'm just trying to be around it as much as I can.
1: Do you want to be doing this in, you know, 20 years, 30 years? Do you think about that? But do you want do you want to be like the old dude?
2: I mean that, but that's the thing is that it's who I am. Yeah. I mean, it is me, yeah. I will be doing it. I mean, that's cuz that's who I that's what I do. You know, it's what I've always done.
1: It's easier to imagine doing this current thing that you do hanging in the studio cranking out songs than like yeah, sure, touring and playing black keys songs necessarily well, in 30 years, but but who knows?
2: I mean, you know, Pat and I have always sort of been like reluctant rock stars you know what I mean we don't like the idea of rock we I, we just just that word makes me want to cringe you know what I mean I I hate you know I mean it's just uh doesn't usually turn out good for rock guys do you know what I mean and I don't know man I've never really felt like one to begin with so I don't know I like what Pat and I do I I wouldn't be worried about doing what we do because it's always been pretty natural too you know I uh I love a little theater, but, like, that's not Pat and I. You know what I mean? Mm. We're not going to be swinging samurai swords on stage, you know, <laughs> with, like, beams of light shooting everywhere and fireworks. <laughs> you know?
1: I'd like to see one tour like that, though. <laughs> I don't even know everyone. if I could
2: do it. Platform boots. just with go a straight face. Yeah, platform boots.
1: What's the kind of current state of your relationship? Are, are you guys in regular contact? Do you take breaks from each other when you're on a break like this? How does that kind of work?
2: I mean, yeah, we text and stuff, you know, but we don't really hang out that much. But, you know, we've seen enough of each other. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Is he anxious to get back to the Keys or is it kind of a mutual... He
2: wa- he wants to, but he's, you know, he just says, whenever, you, whenever you're ready. He's enjoying his time off, too.
1: Do you have any sense of when you'll be ready or is that just, like, not in your head right now?
2: Yeah, it's not really in my head at the moment, but... Yeah, I mean, I I just haven't really even had time to think about it, to be honest.
1: It's going to be really interesting, honestly, to have you come back to that stricture and that band after you've gone so, like, impressively wild in in your directions of of music. I'm I'm kind of excited and interested to see how that all kind of fits back in, you know?
2: Yeah, I mean... The last time I did a solo record, we came back and we did uh, Brothers together. So, right? I think, yeah. That's correct. Yeah. I like that record.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you're basically you're putting a lot of pressure for when, it, <laughs> if and when this happens. That that, but it, it will happen, right? This is yeah. No, I'm sure. No I'm,
2: I know it's going to happen, but uh, I just don't know when. Couldn't tell you. I love making music with Pat. Yeah, I, I'm not worried about it. It's its own thing and that's what's so cool about it It gets to be its own thing
1: you sort of you have your own thing now you have your own studio you have your own label it feels like you want to step aside and make your own little base do you feel alienated from the state of the the pop industry
2: I, i don't really know i don't think about it too much do you know what i mean yeah i don't know anything about it to be honest yeah well, I, know, I know
1: Come I, on, you produced a Lana Del Rey record, man That was a... <laughs> I know, but
2: not because I had pop hits, man Yeah, no, I know You know yeah. And, uh, you know, her Her label was definitely Would have been way stoked if she would have just gone over Made a record with Dr. Luke, I'm sure Do you know what I mean? She had to really fight to, to, to be able to record uh, that yeah, stuff with me Yeah, we talked about right? that, yeah Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, I've always just made music that I like Just because I like it And just because it interests me I mean, I'm just That's what I'm going to do, I think it's it's served me in, up until this point you know
1: there really aren't a lot of people who who have that freedom especially in the i know it i don't now. take it
2: for granted man i i understand it but um i don't know i definitely feel blessed really honestly man and what you know just just being able to like make music with all these guys it's just been such a crazy year for me it's been so eye-opening so what happens to the other like ninety songs or whatever from that that you made? I'm gonna just continue to like try to better them, like try to like see if I can beat them.
1: Did you write them or actually record them? They're they're like you could play me, them for me now, and they're like arranged and like there,
2: there's like strings on them and girl and <laughs> background vocals. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, they're done. Yeah, we the the studio's just going so strong at the moment. I mean, we. It's sort of like you know they talk about stacks or Motown. They had their stable of musicians. That's sort. Of, that's exactly what's going on at my place. And you know they never move their drums or anything at Motown. Or st- I haven't moved the drums for like two years. You know everything's sort sort of set up. It's a Ton of instruments, but they're they're just kind of in their place now. And we just we go pretty quickly. I mean it's, the, we move really fast when we're in the studio. So are
1: you like hemorrhaging money,
2: <laughs> paying off this mm, guy? <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely spending a lot of money. I don't, don't, I'm not cutting any corners, but, um, but like I said, we work efficiently, you know what I mean? Like in a, in a normal day we can cut four or five songs, you know?
1: So basically what you did with your rock star money (laughs) was funnel it back into this like amazing creative freedom and project that, that you're, that you're doing.
2: yeah, and I, I turned down lots of money for touring to, like, stay at home and spend my money. <laughs> Dan, you're, um, hey, Greg, you're crazy, Dan. <laughs> I know. I I definitely, part of me felt feels crazy for doing it because you know my mentality about, you know, I came from the Midwest, and, you know, nothing was ever handed to us, so it's hard for, it was always been hard for Pat and I to, like, turn down a tour because we're like, they want to offer us how much money? Yeah, we got to go do it, you know, so... It's always been hard for us so it, it, it was hard up until even last year just to, to like clean clear my my uh calendar but i'm so glad that i did it you know and i don't know if it'll ever pay for itself but i feel fulfilled in a way that i don't know that i've i've felt before
1: the big come up i think it has it's like 15th anniversary when you listen to those The earliest black keys stuff what what does it sound like to you now
2: uh i mean it's fun i love listening to it i love to hear it you know it just sounds like enthusiasm and and i can hear all the stuff that i was listening to i can you know i'm so connected to all that stuff because i I just i remember what mics we used and the little amps that we used and the guitars and i i remember like you know seeing t-model ford and then cutting certain songs and you know, I'm reminded of all that kind of stuff.
1: And what would the, the, you who made those early records, what, what, what would they think of this? Like your new, your new
2: solo record? Oh, I have no idea.
1: Would you have sort of believed that you could have made something like that back? You know what I mean? Cause it's such so not many steps. Yeah.
2: No, not then. I wouldn't have known even where to begin. We were so clueless. That's, <clears throat> that's kind of why we did everything ourselves. Cause we were way too scared to ask anybody for help and we were in akron so it wasn't like there was a huge scene we there are only a couple of people with like you know for real legit studios and they wouldn't let us touch anything you know so <clears throat> it's been a it's taken a long time it's really hard to to navigate the waters especially recording man it's really hard to be a abandoned know what to do where to spend your money that kind of thing it took years to figure that stuff out
1: and that was me talking with Dan Auerbach about his new solo album and about the future of the Black Keys. And we're gonna take a break and be right back with Mark Benelli to talk about the late Greg Allman. I have with me today in the studio Mark Benelli. Hey Mark. Hey Brian. So Mark is a longtime Rolling Stone writer and he wrote the final Rolling Stone profile of Greg Allman back in 2009, and I wanted to have Mark in and talk a little bit about Greg and and your experiences with him. I mean, we were talking about uh, where he lived it was like a gated community he was in kind of a, a lonely place what, what was your experience of kind of first going in and, and meeting with him
0: yeah I think it got him in a weird time he'd just broken up with his uh, sixth wife <laughs> so one of the very first things he uh, he said to me when I walked into his his house was uh, yeah it's been lonely times up here lately uh, <laughs> so he he lived just outside of Savannah in a gated community as you said sort of you know not a real MTV Cribs style crib it was like a sort of standard you know rich guy's suburban house in a, in a lot of ways. Um, I guess the two cribsier touches were um, there was a framed photograph of him f- feeding ice cream to a tiger.
1: Yeah, I read that in your story and it did raise some questions. Do you know, <laughs> What were the circumstances of this, you know, this
0: ice cream tiger? A lot encounter. of other stuff was going on so I didn't get to ask. It, it feels very walk hard, doesn't it? it f- Doesn't he have a tiger and walk hard? And what, what else was cool there? Was- the other very strange, just funny little detail was a buddy of his came over, just a regular, not a musician, like a fishing buddy, I think, and he brought us some Lunch from this like right. southern place, yeah. um, including Brunswick stew, which is their local specialty. Mm. Um, and uh, the guy, you know, his marriage had just broken up. So the guy was asking, uh, um, you know, how, you know, how he's doing, you know, um, things like that. And and um, then he suddenly said, so y- did she take the barber chairs? And Greg was like, no, no, I got the barber chairs. And I didn't know what they were talking about. And then later he took me on a tour of the house. And in his bedroom, sure enough, there were these two vintage, like perfectly restored barber chairs. Again... Uh, I'll always regret this I did not ask him what the barber chairs were for (laughs) the significance of the barber chair in your bedroom (laughs) but uh,
1: yeah maybe that's what he sat in when they shot his foot to get out of the draft yes could be (laughs) so that is one of the most intense getting out of the draft
0: for Vietnam stories I've ever heard in my entire life what were the circumstances what did he do he was drafted and they had a foot shooting party. So apparently, um, as the legend goes, Dwayne, his brother, painted a target on his left foot um, in the, on the moccasin he was wearing. And Greg uh, drank a lot of whiskey and I think took a bunch of speed and then shot himself in the foot. And uh, it worked. It did work. Yeah. <laughs> so...
1: One of the things you, you get out in your story is, is how haunted he was by the loss of Duane and, and also his father. They had lost their father in this really Southern Gothic kind of murder, right? And he'd, he was already mentally ill. He picked up a hitchhiker and the guy just flat out murdered him and then they were
0: left with a single mom, right? Yeah, when Greg was like two years old, so he really didn't, didn't know his father at all. I guess the father had been in the Korean War, came back with with uh, pretty bad PTSD, <clears throat> was murdered by a hitchhiker, as you said, and um, yeah, when I spoke to Butch Trucks for my story, he said that Dwayne had been sort of like a father figure to him in many ways, although Greg also spoke a lot about how um, Dwayne would, you know, the, just the, the crazy fights they would get into. I mean, he told one story about how, he was like, he was like, yeah, my brother hung me once, and I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, they were like playing some sort of cowboy game, and then like Dwayne ta- taught him how to make a noose and convinced him to, tied around his neck and tied the under, other end to a tree and then somehow like got him to forget about the noose and told him there were cookies in the house or something so he ran and choked himself and uh, and he told me he was blue as a goose <laughs> but yeah anyway Dwayne d- died you know to basically you know it's, it's crazy to think I mean the band formed in 69 he was dead in 71 um, in a motorcycle accident in Macon and then a year later almost to the date something like three blocks away from where Duane had died, uh, the bass player also died in a motorcycle accident. So there was lots of tragedy in this band uh, from a very early um, date. What sense did you get of Greg's kind of relationship to the blues? He felt
1: pretty comfortable with it. He didn't feel like any appropriation, clearly. He felt like this was a music he could... Not only sing but write songs in that form and just kind of embrace the blues. What what was your sense about that relationship?
0: Yeah, he was definitely a blues fanatic. I mean, in fact, while I don't know if this even made it into the story, but while we were talking, he had on and this is going to sound like a plug, but he had on a satellite radio (laughs) the, uh, the blues, one of the blues stations in the background just sort of playing on his television the whole time we were talking. And he would periodically like kind of stop the story and like either to sort of tell me to listen to a song or like to kind of critique a song as not being bluesy enough. And they shouldn't be playing it, or um, so you know. He had a real sort of deep, passionate love, and the and jazz as well. He and yeah. his brother both. I mean, Greg is a <clears throat> keyboardist. Really loved Jimmy Smith, uh, the the jazz organist. So
1: it's interesting. He he also seemed so lonely that he was actually looking on like something like classmates.com to find
0: partners for like a trip, is that? Right? Yeah, well, he told me two separate stories. He's, the classmates.com story was, yeah, that was startling to hear You know, Greg Allman saying that he'd just found this website and was looking up old friends. Um, and he also had had a trip planned to go to Jamaica and he ended up canceling it because he couldn't find anybody to go with him, which was very, yeah, that was, it was sad. I mean, his, his marriage had just broken up. Um, and what he, he came to a realization right about all his marriages finally? Yeah, he was talking about, he was ta- started to say something about his, ex, his most recent ex wife and then kind of stopped himself and said, you know, uh, only, only a fool tells half a story, you know, and just basically said it was not right for him to be talking about her when she wasn't there to defend herself. And then he said, he thought, he paused for a second and he said, to tell you the truth, uh, I've had six wives. I'm starting to think it was me. <laughs> <laughs> He had kind of like the a real ability to like only a fool tells a half a tale he had
1: like a ton of these kind of like old southernisms in him right it he was, was a-
0: very southern yeah and and to your question about the blues i mean I think he he's sort of you know he was he was yeah he was a deeply southern guy, and so so I think some of what maybe sounds to our ears now like a, a sort of appropriation it's coming out of a genuine place you know he was he was you know he was like you know jacksonville is um it's Florida, but it's like the part of Florida that's still very like, Georgia ish, I think.
1: Right. What was your sense of his feelings about the band's accomplishments? Like,
0: how much pride did he have in kind of the, the Almond Brothers and their place in the world? I think he recognized. It. I mean, when I talked to him, I think they were right about. I, I don't think they'd played those shows yet. They were coming up on the 40th anniversary, so they did like something like 15 shows at the Beacon Theater that year. And so, yeah, he was he was very much aware of his of his place in in rock history. And I think, you know, it, you look back at I, you know, I personally going to the story. It was fun. It was a funny one for me to do because I wasn't a super fan in any way. Um, right. I don't know if you grew up listening to them at all, but um, in you know, I think some of it maybe is like a regional classic rock radio differences. Yeah. I've talked to people like Rob Sheffield about this, like what he would hear in Boston versus what I would hear in Detroit. For some reason in Detroit, when I was growing up, they just did not play the Almond Brothers. So I They did in New York. So yeah. on that level, anyone who was like sort of a classic rock person, definitely. But
1: did you become a fan in the course, to a certain extent, in the course of...
0: Yeah. So, I, I mean, I mostly agreed to do the story when they came to me because he just seemed like such a great character and I didn't exactly, really know yeah. the music. And, you know, yeah, you've probably made the same calculations. We write profiles for different reasons. And sometimes you're a huge fan. Sometimes it's just like this person is probably going to be interesting in some way. So I went back and um, yeah, I got I really got into the early records. I mean, oddly, my favorite of their records I think, which is you know something that real almond fans um, would would probably hate me for is, is Brothers and Sisters, the one interesting, the non Dwayne one um, of the early run of records. And I think I, I th- I'm not a big jam band sort of fan, so I think I like that they're short, concise songs
1: <laughs> tell me about his relationship to substances uh by the time you got with him he was sober though smoking weed and that that's a kind of a typical rock star way of being sober which yes. is they're sober but of course they're still smoking weed yeah. like what what are yeah. we animals here you know right. it's like, right. like,
0: <laughs> george clinton i did a profile of him a few years ago and it was the same thing and he was not never he was never not smoking weed the whole time i'm sober he said yeah. smoking a joint yeah, it's very general, yeah. yeah. uh He'd said at the t- yeah, I think he'd been sober since '95 or so. He told me, um, you know, when I got him, he had just been diagnosed with Hep C, so he was he was not super well. Um, but in the early days, yeah, I mean, the stories were crazy. They would when they would tour really early on, they would have like big jugs of Robitussin. <laughs> um, so yeah, they were they had the syrup way before. Uh, and you know, they he told stories about how they got this pure form of psilocybin from. Some guy they knew in a lab, and they would have it for breakfast every morning for like eight weeks straight, just to see what would happen. Uh, and then he personally, you know, really struggled with with um, with a heroin addiction. He apparently started started using heroin a lot after Dwayne died, and um, <clears throat> you know, pretty famously, like when he was married to Cher later in the seventies, um, um, he passed out in a restaurant and, pl- and face first into a plate of spaghetti. And there there were lots of stories like that alcohol wise, he at one point had a booze schedule to try to keep him in, in check, right? Yes, I found that interesting. It was specifically for when they were on tour so he, I think his schedule was he would do a shot uh, every two hours because if he if he let it go for longer than that he would start to get the shakes and that would affect his playing but if he, if he, if he overdid it then he would be too drunk and slurry but although he did admit to me that sometimes he did shots between the shots and cheated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's it's not a perfect science <laughs> the other thing that you really get across
1: is something that people who haven't maybe followed the rock press over the years and just know the music might not understand is the fact that he was seen as something of a rock and roll villain for many years. You, as you say, not quite Ike Turner, but was seen as, you know, kind of a bad guy. Why was that?
0: Yeah, he was, you know, he had a very prickly reputation. I have to say, I had a very pleasant time with him. Um, he was, you know, he was much older, of course, and just kind of mellow and, you know, just seemed like a very sweet guy to me. But if you go, you know, if you go back as I did before the piece and read, you know, all of the the major Rolling Stone stories about him, Starting with the famous Cameron Crowe story that that's sort of partly inspired almost famous, he's a very prickly character. Um, later on in the 70s, as I said, you know, married to Cher, um, he apparently pulled a knife on her during their their honeymoon. Um, their marriage only lasted nine days, I think. Um, there was a big coke bust of of the band um, that he got wrapped up in, and he apparently flipped on. Um, One of their, this roadie, and and basically testified against him. And the other band members just didn't talk to him for years after that um,
1: I was just reading his defense on that which is you know like man the other band members weren't in, in court they didn't see how they were you know how the prosecutors were holding my deposition against me and threatening me with perjury and just like what would you do man and it's like so I guess there's a defense but yes I, I mean to fans and to the band like he was the dude who like narked on someone and that, yeah. that that was not cool in the 70s one thing I
0: didn't ask him about I think they were like pretty tight with Carter weren't they
1: yeah I, I mean they, I know he was
0: definitely in with the Capricorn Records people
1: we have a story by michael gilmore in the next issue of rolling stone it's a great kind of uh life-spanning piece, as Michael tends to do, and one of the things that comes up is, you know, yeah, they were tight with Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was a big fan. There's an anecdote where uh, Carter was alone with, with Greg Allman, and I, I think they're drinking whiskey. So, Carter says, you, you know, uh, Greg, I'm going to be the next president of the United States, and, Gr- and Greg just couldn't believe it, and the next thing he says, and I need some money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, then the, the Allman brothers did a bunch of fundraisers, and uh, so, so yeah, no, that, that's a weird sort of footnote is the tightness with Jimmy Jimmy Carter. So, what else sort of happened in your time with, with Greg that that stands out in your mind?
0: I saw actually saw him twice. I I met up with him again in New York. I mean, a funny sort of thing about that was he was he was like not doing as well that second time. He thought I was from Motocross Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> he was just I really had a great time with him. I mean, he. Um, uh, he would tell he was a hard person to interview I'm sure you've, you've had this this um, experience yourself Brian profiling people he he didn't tell a super linear story so it was hard to convey in print like, right there's the a fun there's a fun part of your piece where I think he's trying to tell you something like maybe the first time he smoked pot and the it, first time he smoked pot in New York okay yeah. and and it just veers off in like
1: possibly seven to eight directions yeah and it, I think what's cool about what you did is, is rather than just like ignore that and try to like make it make sense you actually kind of let it play out like here's what it's like inside of the, the brain of Greg and It seemed like it was kind of a twisty place, let's face it. Yeah,
0: I, feel, I felt like I had to do it at least once in the piece just to sort of show the readers what it was like. But I mean, the rest of the quotes were heavily, you know, <laughs> extracted from, from stories like that. That was really what it was like being with him, at least at that time. So did he seem sad? I, you know, it, it's hard. I hesitate to just sort of um, psychoanalyze the guy based on, you know, spending an afternoon with him. But yeah, based Of course, on- that was your job um, <laughs> with this piece. But yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, the fact that he said he was told me he was lonely, me, a reporter, that like one of the first things he said to me, um, the detail about classmates.com. Yeah, I think he was kind of rattling around in this big house by himself and was probably feeling a little bit wistful. What was your sense
1: about his uh, the, the long break they took and then his resumption of the, of the Ammon Brothers band? I mean, what, what did it mean to him that they had kind of had this whole second act?
0: I think, you know, that was an interesting time. I mean, I ta- when I talked to Butch Trucks about that, he, um, yeah, he said basically, yeah, we took the 80s off. Um, because of disco, he because said. Because he blamed it on disco, yeah. as those guys of a certain age tend to do. <laughs> but, um, but then they, you know, they kind of perfectly um, slid right into the jam band thing. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, they, you know, those Beacon shows were every year. I mean, he, in, even after I saw him, I mean, he, you know, we were talking before before we went on the air. I think he pretty much toured up until the pretty end. until the mean, end, yeah. So he, you know, he sort of lived for it. And when he wasn't touring with the Allman Brothers, he did solo shows. Um, it was it was his life, I think.
1: So I've been talking with uh, Mark Benelli about his uh, great 2009 profile of Greg Allman who passed away recently. And early in the show, we heard from Dan Auerbach about his new solo album. And this has been our episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week at 1 p.m. on volume. And in the meantime, check us out as a podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to subscribe. And we will see you next week.